Good morning, everybody. We are thankful for your presence. It's a wonderful Lord's Day. It's a great opportunity for us to be here and to worship God. Uh, I want to just give a quick um, word. It, it's, it sort of ties into the sermon this morning, uh, and it also is uh, a plug for something else. It was mentioned in the announcements, but it's relevant once more, and that is the New Converts slash Fundamentals class that we're going to be beginning in the library room Sunday mornings for Bible class. So if you're interested in that, you're invited to that. That is to say, if you're a new convert, and you can define that however you want to define it. If you think you're a new convert, by all means. Even if you don't think you're a new convert, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for what you would consider a long time, and you just want a, a class that kind of refreshes the fundamentals, that still is a class that you might be interested in. I'll say this, though, and I'll say this again in the class itself next week. Um, it, is an, it is a fundamentals class. It's a very basics kind of class in terms of the, the subject matter that we're going to be looking at. But fundamental does not mean simplistic. Fundamental does not mean that we're not going to dig deep into the Bible. We are going to dig in that class deep into the Bible. It's just we're going to get, dig deep into what the Bible says about the fundamental topics that kind of are around which we build our faith and doctrine. So just because, oh well, you know, it's a, it's a new conference class, so we'll have a class on baptism, we'll have a class on belief, we'll have a class on the elders. We will, but we're going to dig deep into those subjects. Because just because you're a new convert doesn't mean you're, you're you know, eight years old. Just because you're a new convert doesn't mean you don't know anything, you don't know how to learn, or you don't know how to process or reason or dig deep into a subject matter. So we're going to do that. This morning's sermon is, it sort of ended up becoming, as I was writing it, a prelude to that class. This morning's sermon is a very fundamental kind of sermon. If you look in your pew bulletin, uh, that front page, it's just a jumble of words. It's just a, a, uh, a menagerie of different words. And there is a rhyme and there is a reason to them. But their purpose is that they are the key words around which this sermon is built. There are three big words that you can see there if you have your pre-bulletin. There is God, there is Christ, and there is man. There is God, there is man, and there is Christ uh, who, who stands spiritually in between them. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, just saying that, you can hear how simple it is. All, all we're going to do is just look at who God is, look at who man is, look at what man became, and look at how Christ helps man to become what he ought to be. That's it. We accomplished that. We'll have accomplished our purpose for the sermon this morning. Let's start with God. Let's begin in the beginning. Let's begin with he who has always been. He who was in the beginning did not begin when the beginning began. He always has been. He started the beginning, so he was there to start it. He flipped the switch. In the beginning, John writes in his version of the Genesis account, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life that is defined by who he is, as is described through the rest of the book, is the light of men. That's not to say man was in the beginning, but the life of light and the light of life, that is the word, Jesus, is what is in man. But in the beginning, in the beginning, forevermore, always has been and ever shall be, God has always been. And then God decided to start time. And in so starting time, he started making things that expire with time. And the creation account begins. 
in Genesis chapter 1. And as you know, you've read it a thousand times, as God goes about making the various things from the big, the planets, to the small, the blades of grass, with everything that he makes, he ends with the same adjective. He describes it the same way. He makes it, and he says, it is what? Good. And then God makes man. And before that, even before he actually goes about making man, as he's making everything else, he's not doing something. He makes the stars, and he makes the sun, and he makes the the animals, and he makes the, the mountains and the streams. He makes all these things, but he does not make them in his image. He just makes them out of his own natural creative character. Out of his own creative impulses, he forms the mountains, he makes the galaxies. And then when he says something different, something is different about to happen, he says, let us make man in our image. Let us, just implying the, the multifaceted nature of this being, let us make something that's not like anything that's ever been made so far. Let us make a person in our image. When God made the sun around which this planet orbits, which gives us life and light in a physical sense. He did not make the sun, this in the space, in his image. When he made the hippopotamus, he did not make the hippopotamus in his image. When he made the skunk, as wonderful an animal as it could be, which could only ever be called a skunk, he made a skunk not in his image. But when he said to himself, let us make something in our image, he made Man, And after he made man, he did not use the same adjective that he used earlier. He didn't say it is good. He said man is what? Very good. Of course we are. We were made in his image. But, as you know, you turn the page, man does not stay in his image. Man sins. Genesis chapter 3. The devil comes to tempt Eve. Man, humanity comes to tempt Eve, and offers her what is already there in front of her, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree which God places, not in a random location, not obscurely that it might be stumbled into, but no, he puts that sucker right in the exact middle of the garden, puts a spotlight on it, and says, here is the tree, do not eat from this one tree. Everything else is fair game. Don't eat from this tree. If you, eat, if you even touch it, you will die. So don't eat from it. Very clear, very concise, well-stated commandment by the Lord. Boundaries are set for man in the image of God. The devil comes along and tempts man to break, to go beyond the boundaries set by God. And as he tempts Eve, Eve starts to look at the fruit of this tree, and she says that it is, to herself, it is pleasant to behold, probably tasted very good, and could do what the devil said, she believes. What did the devil say the fruit would do? He said, it would make you to know good and evil, but he specifically puts it in a certain way. He says, if you eat from this tree, God knows that if you eat from it, you will become like God. So Eve, tempted, eats. Gives to her a husband, tempted, who eats. And what happened? They did not become like God. They became like the devil. They were lied to, and man falls. Man who was made in the image of God is no longer like God. God anymore. No longer is man holy and distinct and special. Now man has lowered himself. Man has reduced himself spiritually to being foul and dirty and as you can see illustrated 
uh, bathed in the darkness of disfellowship from God. Man is now separated from God. Where once man and God walked in harmony, now man has to be separated from God. God and man cannot coexist anymore because God remains holy. Now man is unholy. Man is a sinner. Man has defiled the holiness of God. And before you attack Adam too much, before you wag a finger at Adam or Eve too much, let's remember, if it had not been Eve, it would have been Adam. If it hadn't been Adam, you know Cain killed his brother. If it hadn't been Cain, Abel would have committed his own sin. At some time or another, somebody was going to be the one to sin and ruin it. If it hadn't been any of them, no offense, y'all, it would have been one of you. And if it hadn't been you, I know it would have been me. You know how I know? Because I've sinned. How about you? Have you sinned? If you've sinned and I've sinned, then we've all sinned. And if we've all sinned, then we've all fallen short. We've all failed to reach on our own the holiness of God. We slipped away from it and found ourselves too deep in a ditch, unable to find it again. Man is sinner. Man is something else. Man is not just a sinner. As a consequence of man's sin, man is alien. I don't mean little green man, alien. I mean alien, the classical usage of the word. Man is now a foreigner. Man is now someone who is not part of the same family of God. God made man in his image very good. And then because of the actions of man, man has so changed himself that he cannot even call himself in the image of God anymore. He cannot be very good anymore. He's a completely different being entirely. There is a border of holiness around God. And man is now a foreigner removed from that border. Man is over here, alien. As Isaiah writes to apostate Judah, your iniquities, your sin has separated you from your God. God has, as a consequence of your sin, hidden his face from you. He can't look at you. He can't behold you. He doesn't listen to your prayers anymore. He doesn't see your deeds. He has turned away from you. Why? Because you are in darkness and he is light. Because you are in the, now in the image of the devil. And he is in the image of holiness and purity and righteousness. And you are now a sinner, alienated from God. You're one more thing. I'm one more thing. You're God's enemy. I'm choosing my words very carefully. When you choose, when I choose to sin, we make God our enemy. We rebel against God. We attack God. We, we target God and we say, God, you're now my enemy. I'm not going to obey your commandments. I'm not going to do what you say to do. You're my enemy. That's true. But let's also understand the opposite is true too. When you defile the holiness of God, when you spit in the face of the righteous one, he says you now are my enemy. And that's a totally different thing. Because when I say God is my enemy and I attack God, it is an ant attacking an elephant. He doesn't even feel it. He doesn't even notice it unless he wants to. It's it's just scratching at the hide that you can't penetrate. But when the elephant says to the ant, you're my enemy, you better believe the ant takes notice. Because if God puts his target on you, and if God says to you, you defile me, you sinned, you're now my enemy, you better pay attention because you don't stand a chance against him. And that's the condition that man found himself in. Man who decided to sin became sinner, became alienated, and God put a target on him and called him enemy. That's a terrifying thing. 
Does God have the right to do that? Yes. You were once alienated. You were once enemies because of your wicked works. He didn't make you that way. He didn't cause you to sin. He's not the one who tempted you. He didn't tempt Adam and Eve. He, he made a commandment for Adam and Eve. And he expected them to obey the commandment. Adam and Eve were tempted and chose to disobey, just like we all have. God has every right because God is judge. God is the only one who has seen everything, who knows everything. God has full context. You know how hard it is to find a good judge in the United States of America or any other country? The best ones are the ones who are completely detached from from the case at hand. And they allow just the evidence to come to them and they make a verdict based on the evidence. But even this incomplete because they're never going to get all of the evidence. They're never going to know all of the facts. So they can only make the best judgment they can make. A jury acting in that sense can only make the best ruling they can make. But God knows all. He sees all. He's heard all. He's been there from before the beginning began. So you cannot say to him, yeah, but, how, but you, you don't know the circumstances. You don't know what was going on. He already knew it before you did it. He is the perfect judge. And so if that judge finds me guilty, I've got no wiggle room to complain. And he is the judge. As he said in the Garden of Eden, the day you eat, you will, what? Die. Same word Moses uses in Exodus, one book later. If you break these commandments written in tablets of stone, you will be stoned to death, capital punishment, executed. If you touch that tree, Eve, if you eat from that fruit, Adam, I am going to put you to death. Judge makes a judgment and says, here's the consequences if you break the ruling. But God, aren't you thankful, is a merciful judge. He could be the opposite. He could be a venge-seeking judge. God is a God of vengeance. But God does not want vengeance. God is a God who will execute judgment and punishment after, after judging. But he doesn't like doing that. And you see that through line all throughout the Bible. You go all the way through the Bible and you just get these indications of the way God's mind works and the way God would approach a situation and how frequently God is talked out of destroying someone or something. Over and over, he gives people opportunities to repent. Multiple times, he sends prophets to evil nations, begging them to repent. And they'll sin a thousand times and repent once, he he forgives them. Well, shouldn't they have to repent a thousand times? No, because God favors mercy over and over. The whole reason he sent Jonah to Nineveh in the first place, to that wicked and evil city, was because he would prefer not destroying. And the reason he sent Jonah back after the whale swallowed him It's because he prefers mercy on Jonah or on Nineveh. God is a God who would rather forgive. God is a God who would rather be merciful. Aren't you glad the judge who renders you guilty also in the back of his mind is thinking, is there something I can do to get these people out of the punishment they deserve? Because that's what God thought. That's what was going through his mind. He knows he can't just not punish you or me. He can't just not do it. Something has to be done. An action has to have a consequence. Otherwise, God ceases to be God. He must maintain his holy nature. I've sinned. We've sinned. We're outside of God's holy nature. We're over there in the darkness. Something must be done. I deserve to die. But he's thinking to himself, what can I do that maintains my holiness, that punishes sin, 
but also saves humanity. That's the merciful mind at work. He's thinking about ways to save you. God is merciful, rich in mercy, Paul says. In other words, he's got so much mercy, he doesn't know what to do with it. His purse of mercy is overflowing. He's just giving it away. He's rich in mercy. And God is loving. These are two different words. We conflate them. We put them together. We overlap them. He's merciful and loving. Those are two different things. He's merciful. He wants to save. He's loving. He does the actions necessary to save. A merciful mind is a compassionate heart. A merciful person is looking for an opportunity. A loving being goes into action to save someone. Because love is not an emotion. Love is an action. God is a loving God. I know that because Paul says, God commends his love toward us. God gives over his love to us. So before we shift to the second and the last part of the sermon, here is God. And once upon a time, here is God and man in harmony. And then man sins and man has to be separated from God spiritually. Put over there in darkness. But God, who has judged them guilty and worthy of darkness, is also merciful. And he puts them into action with an action of love. What specifically does God do? How specifically does God show? How do you know that God loves? God commends his love toward us. And that while we were still in the darkness of sin, Christ entered the picture. Christ came and died for us. If you eat from that tree, if you sin, you will surely, what? Die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. You work for Satan, you get paid Satan's wages. The wages of sin is, what? Death. If you sin, I am going to put you to death. But I don't want to. My holy nature, my judgment compels me. Somebody's got to die. But I don't want to kill Matthew. He's over here in the darkness. I don't want to kill him. But Matthew can't die for himself. You can't die for me either. Somebody has to die. Either it's me or someone who could die for me in a good enough way to satisfy God's justice. So if none of us could do it, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No one could die for us except God. And so the same God who needs to kill for the action of sin chooses to kill himself, standing in your place. Jesus died for me. You ever say that phrase? We sing that phrase. We know that phrase. Jesus died for me. That word for is so important. Jesus died because of me. Yes, I sinned. He died. Jesus died pertaining to me. Sure, I was on his mind. Jesus died in order to obtain me, yes, he did. I'm in his church. Jesus died instead of me. I deserve to die, but I didn't. I should have been put to death, struck down, capital punishment. But he died instead of me. God, who was judge, merciful, and loving, demonstrated that in the form of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for man. That's what Jesus is. He is the, John Rice, propitiation sin offering for our sins. And not for ours only, because he's writing to Christians, about Christians, so we make sure to emphasize, not for ours only, but to all, to the whole world. 
For everybody, Jesus died to become the sin offering. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, how good or bad you are in terms of your actions, your morality. It doesn't matter if you even obey the gospel or not. Jesus died for you. He died so that you could be saved. Whether you are or not, well, that's up to you. Eve chose to, to fall away. You can choose to come back. She chose to walk away from the tree of life. You can choose to walk back to it. She chose to eat of sin. You can choose to partake of the, the holy nature of God. So you have the option now because of the death of Christ. He became the sin offering, dying so you wouldn't have to die. Now you can live or you can die. It's up to you. He is reconciler because you are over here and God is over there. And holiness and unholiness cannot meet. Light and darkness cannot coexist. Uh, Sanctification and unsanctification cannot mingle. Something has to bridge the gap. And so as the old preachers used to say, God takes the sinful hand of man over here and the holy hand of God over here and he bridged the gap between the two on the cross. He is reconciler, a word which originally from the Greek means to mend as one again. You are one with God. You sin. And like if you take a kitchen knife and you slice your hand, and I mean a good one, and you really flay the skin open and you got to get stitches, and what do the stitches do? They force the skin back together. That's what Jesus does. Between God and man, he reconciles the two sides back together. As the Bible says, that he might reconcile into his one body by the cross. He is reconciler. He is sacrifice. He is deliverer. Now you might look at this list and you might think, shouldn't reconciler be there next to enemy and deliverer, I guess, with alien? But reconciler, that makes sense. You're the enemy. You need to be reconciled. No, no, no. Because as we said before, God targets you as a sinner. You now become the enemy of God. And God puts a crosshair on you and the elephant is looking at the ant and there's nothing that he can do about it. He could squash it like a bug. What you need is a savior. What you need is a rescuer. What you need is a knight in shining armor to come in and swoop you away and take care of you because without that rescuer, you're squashed. You need a deliverer. You need a savior, someone who can rescue you. And that's what he is. He is your deliverer. He gave himself for your sins that he might deliver you from this present evil world and the condemnation that's coming to it. Now, I'm almost done. This is my close. You see the map in front of, or behind me, in front of you. You see where God is, where man fell to, where Christ exists to bring the two back together. So what are the consequences now of Jesus' death? Jesus says, you're no longer a sinner. Oops, uh, you're saved. You're no longer a sinner, now you're saved from your sins. You're no longer an enemy, now you're family. You're no longer, an alien, pardon me, now you're family. You're no longer an enemy, now you're a friend. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, you could not do any of these things for yourself, but covered in his blood, put in his body, walking in fellowship with him who has never been out of fellowship with God and ever will be, you can now be in fellowship with God and you can exist. And that's the distinction we need to make to people because people start to think, I'm saved so I have my righteousness and I'm good and I'm right with God. No, it is always Christ who is right with God. Are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? If you're in Christ, you're right with God because Christ is. Walk away from Christ and see how righteous you are. Walk away from Christ and see how, how far your holiness is going to get you. It's not going to get you anywhere. But if you're in Christ, you're not a sinner anymore. You're saved from your sins. You're not a, an alien separated anymore. You're now family with God. You're not an enemy anymore. You're the friend of God. 
That's what Jesus does for us. That's basically the Bible. Did you believe that? It's, it's what is 1105? 1116. I got to quit now. That just basically summarized the Bible for you. Because as all the Bible says, basically you can boil it down to this, God and man he made and the way he brings man back to him. The relationship between God and man through Jesus Christ. That's that right there. That's why Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Because he died for me. He died for you. Are you a Christian this morning? If you are not, Jesus has made it so that you can be. He has paid your way in to the good graces of God again. And the same God who would send you to hell if you choose not to take his free gift has done everything above and beyond to make sure you don't have to go to hell. All you've got to do is take him up on his offer. Walk with him and be saved in his blood. Wash yourself in the blood of Jesus. Believe and be baptized into him. Mark 16, 16. And if you are a Christian but you've fallen away and you've walked away from a relationship with Christ and God, turn and walk back into it and be saved once more. If we can help you, let us know how right now. Please come as we stand and sing.